At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Best in Show, episode 22. This is the only podcast dedicated to the show rabbit and KV industry. My name is Alan Messick. I'm from California. I'm an ARBA judge, and I'm joined each and every week by the acute and insightful Bryony Smith from Kansas. Bryony, how's it going in your part of the world? It's still warm. It's still summer, and fairs are still rolling along. One of my favorite times of the year. Yeah, we are both still knee-deep in fairs, and that is going to lead into, again, our topic this week, which I'm really excited about, the interview that you did, um, which we'll talk more about um, I'm currently still at the Orange County Fair. I'm back actually for my second wave. I've been here for a week doing an educational display on natural fibers, specifically the love of my life and our goats and mohair and getting lots of people walking in the barn going, look at the llamas. <laughs> no, guys, it's Orange <laughs> County. I understand, but they're not llamas. Um, llamas spit. Yeah. Llamas, llamas, spit, llamas are not their fiber is nothing like an engorgo come on guys but they wouldn't know that so actually i've got some cool stuff here you'd love it i um so my my display incorporates different ways to use mohair and natural fibers and i found this incredible couch on facebook marketplace which is such an awesome hub for used stuff and it's a 1960s mohair couch that was brought over from germany and it is in impeccable shape because of course it's made of mohair and mohair has uh an incredible uh, ability to resist rubs or wear. There's actually a rub measure in textiles for how many people can sit on something before it starts to disintegrate. And this thing is in great shape. You would love it. It's very, very vintage. Oh, I love mid-century modern furniture. Yeah, it's really cool. And it's got like this really cool kind of sage mint color too. Oof, I'm going to, yeah, I was going to dump it. Actually, I was like, ah, oh, what am I going to do with this mohair couch? But now I'm like, uh, I think I've got to take this home and somehow figure out how to live with it because I can't live without it. Well, if not, I'll come and get it. <laughs> you would love it. it I, I would totally give it to you. And I know it would be very much appreciated. So um, you had a great uh, episode 21 last week. Lots of great comments. Um, it was really awesome to incorporate some youth perspective and upcoming contests because, of course, we've got the convention coming up in Louisville and lots of kids around the country are gearing up for it. Um, I believe you have a listener comment to, to read for us regarding last week's episode, correct? I do. Um, this was on a post that Chelsea shared and is from her mom, Rachel. She said, first, I must say, Chelsea, you did such a great job. Annette and I are both so very proud of you. Second, Bryony and Alan have a wonderful podcast. It's quite enjoyable to listen to. We love listening to you promote the youth contest as I was blessed to get to watch your determination and love of your hobby for so many years. And now I get to see Jake doing the same thing. 
And finally, hearing Jake's little voice talking about chip and loving showmanship, that was the cherry on top. (laughs) As a side note, thank you for mentioning your mom. I would have done anything to keep that smile on your face. And as Chelsea told us, that involved a lot of allergy medication. (laughs) (laughs) That's so awesome. And we love your mom, too. Yes, we do. Rachel is awesome. So cool. Thanks for that uh, awesome comment. There were so many more regarding that that podcast episode. And just a reminder to our our kids in the audience and leaders and, uh, you know, whether you're an advisor for FFA, th- that Louisville convention is coming up. And it's not too late to enroll those uh, those youth members in those contests. And they're such a valuable aspect to what we do. And they certainly have been a driving force for keeping our association and uh, our industry alive because it invigorates so much energy and adherence and almost marriage to the ARBA and what we do for a lifetime. So guys, join us in Louisville and enter those youth contests. And actually next week, we're going to talk to uh, Tom Berger from the youth committee, and he's going to talk even more about what's going on in the youth programs and how to better prepare. Yeah, lots of perspectives on these very important contests. Um, And like we've talked about over and over on this podcast, a lot of people who have stuck with this hobby and, you know, really kind of taken it to the fullest extent did participate in and benefit from all of the things they learned in the youth contests. Absolutely. You and I, <laughs> we're two of just a lo- whole lot of other ones. Um, and I'm going to read a comment. It actually comes to us this week from our Apple podcast platform. And I don't know the name, but the username is eplute. And this person says uh, tons of great inf- information for anyone interested in raising and showing rabbits. This podcast is playing every time I get in the car. So thanks for that great comment. And um, we've heard lots of people saying that it's what they listen to when they're driving or when they're cleaning the barn. And we hope that uh, more and more people continue to tune in every week, wherever you are, and listen to our podcast. And don't forget uh, to like, share, and follow The Rabbitry on Facebook. That will continue to be the hub for the Best in Show podcast. So each and every week, we'll post a new link to the podcast episode that we have just released. And there are also links forever and ever to the archive of previously um, played podcast episodes from Best in Show. So f- forever and ever, if you want to go back and look, there's something in there for everyone. And we're going to guarantee that once you start listening, you're going to get hooked and probably listen to all of them. So, um, and also we do appreciate these comments, whether they come to uh, Brian and I in person when we're out there judging fairs or judging shows or through email, you can email us at podcast best in show at gmail.com. Again, podcast bestinshow at gmail.com to drop us those comments or maybe some suggestions for the future. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Audible, Spotify, whichever platform that is, there are other options for you to leave five-star ratings as well as your comments. And those really do mean a lot to us because it helps to um, shorten, shorten the algorithm and uh, get this podcast uh, you know, in the hands and the ears of like-minded rabbit and KV fanciers around the world. So thanks again for those comments. And uh, we're going to kind of divert back to some of our original uh, format with this podcast. And that's diving into some history because I've got some cool stuff to read this week. And we chose 1944. And Brian, I believe you're going to tell us what's going on in the world back then. Well, first in 1944, the big news around the world that everyone was involved in was World War II. Um, Alan, did anyone in your family serve in World War II? Yep. My grandfather uh, served in uh, the Pacific and lost his finger, actually. (laughs) Thankfully, just his finger. Yes. How about you? Oh, wow. Um, My grandpa enlisted at the very end of World War II in the Navy and um, was in the Mediterranean and then was recalled in Korea. Wow. And 
looking my, back in those days, how many, how many others were just, it was just part of what you, those baby boomers are our parents. So they talked about it was, it was a very part, very much a part of their, their life. Like we're probably going to talk about COVID forever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, so many people enlisted and served. My grandpa was 17 at the time and he wanted to get out of the house really badly. Um, lived in North central Kansas and he wanted to get out of the house and go see things and do things. And my mother's um, uncle, my mother's mother's brother, um, Gerald Carpenter, named Uncle Buddy, also served in World War II and was killed in a kamikaze attack on the USS Hancock. Wow. Incredible. These these young guys and, and women that went out there and whether you wanted to get away from home or you just you just felt like that was your duty. I mean, they were brave, brave men and women that uh, sacrificed so much for, for not only our country, but for for peace in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So also in 1944, there were other things going on in the world. On March 2nd, the 16th Academy Awards was held. Casablanca won the Best Picture Award, uh, one that's probably never been disputed, as are some of those awards. On March 18th, the last eruption of Mount Vesuvius in Italy um, near Naples. 26 people were killed in that. Several others displaced during that eruption. On May 30th, Princess Charlotte Louise Juliette Lové Grimaldi resigned the throne of Monaco in favor of her son, who became Prince Rainier, later known worldwide for marrying American actress Grace Kelly. On June the 4th, Rome falls to the Allies. June the 6th of 1944, of course, was D-Day, the invasion of Normandy. On July 6th, Jackie Robinson was arrested and court-martialed for refusing to move to the back of a segregated U.S. Army bus. He was eventually acquitted for this. On August 4th of that year, Anne Frank and her family were discovered in hiding in the annex. On August 9th, the U.S. Forest Service released the first posters with Smokey the Bear, Only You Can Prevent Forest Fires. On August 24th, the liberation of Paris occurred. On November 7th, Franklin Delano Roosevelt wins a historic fourth term as the United States president. On November 25th was when the kamikaze attack occurred on the USS Hancock. And on December 24th, 1944, was the first complete U.S. production of Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker performed in San Francisco, a performance that has become a holiday tradition for many people around the country. Wow, what a cool, what a crazy year. Um, so much going on. I had no idea that all that happened. And Smokey the Bear, <laughs> I see him all the time in California. He's always telling us, don't, don't do those forest fire things. Please be kind and don't just light stuff on fire. <laughs> the state is already burning up. Yes. And, and I think, you know, a good reminder that while this was, you know, obviously the thing that consumed most of the world's attention for several years, life still was going on outside of the war. Yes, it was. Gosh, well, um, I've got some brighter news <laughs> from from my angle. Uh, so a couple weeks ago, I was uh, with some friends, uh, Jeff and Kelly, and they're actually uh, working behind the scenes on our podcast and some other stuff we're doing with the rabbitry. And Jeff handed me this stack of envelopes from 1944 that he found on eBay. And they were letters written to um, a rabbit journal at the time. So this predates the uh the magazine that we know and love so much today, that's the Domestic Rabbits magazine. So before all that even started with Orrin Reynolds, uh, there was a private newsletter of sorts that was published for rabbit breeders. So it was private from the ARBA, but the ARBA was very much involved in it. And it was called the American Rabbit Journal, and it was published in Warrington, Missouri. And the editor was Frank F. Holman. 
so these letters that he handed me, I was like, oh my gosh, he handed me them at like one in the morning. I'm like, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. You would be, you and I both really geeking out, geeking out on them and reading them for endless hours. But um, I'm going to dive into one of those letters today uh, and read from it. It is actually the letter written from the ARBA secretary at the time, Louis S.J. Griffin. Um, and the ARBA was not called the ARBA back then. In 1944, the ARBA was actually called the ARCBA. That stands for, stood for the American Rabbit and Cavey Breeders Association. And at the time, uh, the home office for the ARBA, or at the time the ARC and CBA, was located in Colorado Springs, um, Colorado. And Brian, you're, you're the history guru on this one. So where does uh, Secretary Lewis Griffin fall into the the, the long line of uh secretaries and executive directors that we've had in the ARBA. So interestingly enough, Lewis Griffin's secretary term was not his first service on the ARBA executive board. He served as president of the National Petstock Association of America in 1917. And then fast forward to 1943, he um, returned to service on the executive board of the American Rabbit and Cavey Breeders Association. The office moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado, as you said. He served for 1943, 1944, and 1945 before the office went to James Blythe. It was later moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where it remained until Ed Pfeiffer Jr. took over and the office moved to Bloomington, Illinois. And that brings us to Glenn Carr's hiring in Bloomington and then um, up to modern-day ARBA history. Cool stuff. He certainly saw some, some change in, in our industry uh, back then uh, to have held those positions in, in several, several regards. So uh, pretty cool stuff. This envelope actually has a, a postmark on it stamped uh, December 7th, 1944. And this is, again, this is his letter. This is his secretary report being submitted to the American Rabbit Journal for uh, for reading by ARBA or ARCBA members throughout the country. And I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to highlight some of it. Um, the first paragraph goes like this. I know every member we have will join me in extending our thanks to and best wishes to our retiring president, John, F I think it's Fair or Fur, who has done such a splendid job. And anyone who has worked with President Fur realizes better the time and effort he has devoted to the American. And I, so several just a side note in here, um, the secretary refers to the ARCBA several times as the Americans. So it's kind of interesting how it was abbreviated back in those days. He didn't say ARCBA or as we say ARBA, just simply refers to our organization as the American. Um, back to his words on that outgoing president. His whole ambition has been for a clean and helpful administration. His guiding hand has been a godsend to the American and our industry. Thanks, John, for a job well done. Uh, we who know, know that we can never repay you for the efforts and time you have given to our cause and the entire industry owes you gratitude of thanks that never can be repaid. And it's just so reflective about how we address our uh, doers and uh, former board members in our, in our industry today. It's, those lines would be very, very um, consistent with how we reflect on, on those leaders today. Um, he goes on to say, just a word to our registrars, I am asking each and every one of you to please be careful and supply the letter after the registration numbers, especially on any ancestors recorded. We are forced to return many owing to the letter being left off. We have no way of knowing what series of registration the numbers represents without the letter. 
So please insist that these are supplied when making your registration for the breeders. Also, may I ask that you give a careful double check on registrations before sending them in. Please help us to save time and compliance. Now, isn't that something we still say today to registrars? And I'm sure that Eric and the office is constantly reminding registrars about things that they've left out or omitted. And back then they couldn't just, you know, punch some numbers in a computer and, and pull up at least something that was similar. Like they had no way of, of tracking this stuff. Cool stuff, right? Some things never change. <laughs> you got it. Uh, he goes on in his report. This is Secretary Griffin's report. He says, attention judges. Our shows are receiving more KV entries than ever, especially in recent years. And our judges are going to be compelled to pass upon these KVs. And we suggest that all judges read their standard and study the same very carefully and contact some local KV breeders in order that they will be able to handle the KV classes in a satisfactory manner for many of these shows will not be able to hire a special KV judge. If you have not received the bulletin number 20 on KVs, you should send for one. This will help to understand the KV situation better and put you in closer contact with KV breeders. And uh, remember the interview with the Luciers, they talked about in their early days in the 70s how there weren't necessarily KV judges and that rabbit judges at the very end of the day would be uh, sort of feeling stuck to having to judge the KVs. So that was a real thing all the way back in 1944 too. Um, oh, yeah. And, okay, you're going to love this part of his, of his report because he dives into reflecting on the recently published uh, guidebook or handbook, which apparently had the standards maybe in it as well. So it was all one document. And he goes on to say, recently several judges have written in for rulings pertaining to this that and other in regards to our standards. Some things were missed or overlooked or should have been put in the guidebook. We are sorry for these omissions, but there were just too many things to check and some changes had been made at various times. Therefore, for the information of all, I will here give some rulings that have been established in the past and will help the judges and the breeders pertaining to the issues. I'm only gonna read a few of them, but number one, Recently, the board clarified a ruling on Rex, which was submitted by the Rex Federation for an endorsement. Any Rex to be eligible to register must be offspring from a true breeding Rex-coated sire or dam of a breed specified. So back in the day, Rex was sort of a mutation. It wasn't necessarily an established breed. And uh, during the fur trade, people were probably breeding Rex to other breeds to propagate them and make, make them more numerous. But to register them in the ARBA or ARCBA, you had to have uh, parents that were both Rex. Uh, number three bulletin point on uh, Secretary Lewis's uh, submission to this journal, Flemish. A question was wait, raised on weights for Flemish to register on page 341 under rules to apply and judging. Number one, disqualify any senior buck under 12 pounds. Number two, disqualify any senior doe under 13 pounds. Therefore, any Flemish buck weighing 12 pounds or doe weighing 13 pounds that meets other requirements of the standard as to type and so forth is to be eligible for registration. Disqualifications applying, of course. So isn't that funny that, I mean, when we read today, like the minimum weight is whatever it is for any breed. Like if you're below that, you're not going to be registered or shown. But apparently someone was reading the standard. It didn't specifically specify, like if it's underweight, you can't register it. So they had to go forth and, and make that correction or that uh, extra sentence in his, in his column. Uh, number four, live meat classes on page 25 include small fryers, medium fryers, and large fryers consisting of pens of three. This last, quote, pen of three was left out of the standard by error. 
Um, he goes on finally and says, our proposed advance registration known as gold and silver seal seems to be meeting the approval according to letters I'm receiving in response to my article in the November issue. The local club secretaries are responding splendidly. About 30 clubs so far have reported. Other secretaries have advised that the matter will be taken up at their next meeting. Two different secretaries reported the discussion on this subject brought out the other interesting meetings and said that they were the most interesting meetings of the year. One registrar stated this plan will certainly increase registrations and will be an incentive to build better strains, better stock, as well as more complete records. The interest shown at our last meeting certainly proved our breeders are associated with the efforts of the officers of the AR and CBA and what it is they're trying to do to improve conditions for the breeders and the American or the ARCBA. We are for this system 100%, and here is one that will uh, be an endeavor to have my herd and my herd be 100% gold certification stock as possible, and I heard others express the same idea. I'm in hopes that all secretaries will report on this question in the very near future and see that your next meeting uh, includes this subject discussed as well. So this is back in the early days of registration and, and they're incentivizing registering rabbits in the ARBA by saying you can, you know, sort of achieve these extra goals, which were at the time a gold and silver steel or seal. And I think that's kind of similar to what's going on with our master breeder program that was um, adopted. Gosh, it's something almost two years now, but because of COVID, we haven't had a lot of shows. And that's another incentivizer to, uh, you know, register your rabbits because showing grand champions or owning grand champions as well as some other things will fall into that. And we're going to talk to uh, Johnny Hausner, who was actually the original author of that uh, master breeder program in an upcoming episode. So it kind of relates to that. And I'm going to conclude with uh, secretary Lewis's report. He says um, the following our, our grand champions recorded for October of 1944. And <laughs> this is crazy. There are a total of 10. <laughs> so there were not very many grand champions back then, but he was very proud of them. And, Every single one of them got listed in his report. Well, and I'm sure that that was a very exciting and prestigious award for the owners as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially in 1944. Um, was there a rabbit convention in 1944? So going through the war years, we did miss some. Um, in 1941, the convention was held in Fort Wayne, Indiana. There was no convention in 1942. It returned to Fort Wayne in 1943 there was no convention in 1944, and in 1945, there was no convention but a board meeting only. So there were um, three cancellations during this time. There had also been some prior cancellations of conventions or conventions that weren't held. There was no convention in 1927 um, and no convention in 1937. So um, 2020 is only the sixth convention that has not been held since they began in 1918. That's crazy. And I can imagine the breeders back then felt just as disappointed as our members today were when 2020s was canceled. And I'm sure we're anxious the next time the convention happened. Um, so even though it was 80 years ago, almost 80 years ago, uh, there's some similarities in, in our outlook and our ex excitement and disappointments uh, in our industry. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's not as far away as we imagine. And of course, as we know, after the Great Depression and World War II, um, the hobby kind of grew. That's when a lot of people began raising backyard meat rabbits to help feed their families. 
And it kind of shifted a bit from being originally a fancy to, you know, the meat breeds being some of the dominant breeds at the shows, some of the more popular breeds at the shows. Um, So that pendulum has kind of swung back and forth over the years due to, you know, the national circumstances, which is really interesting. Yeah, I love that. And it's such a nod to those meat breeds. And it really was a farm to fork um, sort of way of living back then. And I hope that we actually see more of that as we all experienced uh, this last year. And like, you can grow your own food and you can have some rabbits. And I hope that that actually increases our, the interest in, in our industry um, nationwide and really globally. Yeah, I do too. All right. So we've got a great interview coming up. We're going to talk about uh, some youth, uh, county fairs, volunteerism. Um, How about you uh, roll with an introduction to our guest today? Sure. Uh, Our special guest today is Carly Wigton. Carly is from Lyon County, Kansas. She began as a youth. She is now an ARBA registrar. For the past few years, she has been the county leader for the Lyon County 4-H Rabbit Project. She's also the fair superintendent. So we thought it would be interesting to kind of contrast a larger fair, as we heard about a couple weeks ago, versus a small Midwestern fair um, in a a county that, as we talk about, most of you are probably going to consider rural. It's one of the more populated in Kansas, um, but it's a it's a different perspective. You know, two different sides of a long running fair that um, you know has some staffing versus a fair that's mostly um, centered around 4-H and agriculture is shorter duration and almost totally volunteer. So um, we will get to meet Carly here in just a few moments. Carly, thank you for joining us today. Um, Can we start off by having you kind of introduce yourself and tell us how you got into rabbits and who are some of your mentors in the rabbit hobby? Uh, Well, thank you guys for having me. I never thought you guys would ask me of all people because... it's a lot of big names that have been on this and to be in there with some of the greats is just a huge honor for me. I joined 4-H in 2007 and that's really where my experience with rabbits started. I had, I know my first memory of the fair, well, I don't even have a first memory because it's just so ingrained with me. Every year I would go through and I had to see the animal exhibits. I had to go through every single pen at least twice. I probably went through every day that the fair was there. And when I was old enough to join, I did. And I started with a meat goat and a bucket calf. Because at the time we had about 2,000 head of four goats which a lot of people didn't know that we raised or a lot of people that I know now didn't know that I started with goats. And then my second year I had a goat and a calf as well, but that's where I I got my first rabbits and it was a pair of black satins and little seven year old or probably eight, nine year old me at that time. Turns out that was a little bit too much for me to handle. And so I ended up getting some Holland Lops. I'd raised a lot of breeds throughout the years. And I looked back at some of the pictures that my mom had taken from then. And seeing the quality of my animals from then to now has changed drastically. I mean, where I've kept them has changed. And 
I've learned every year. But I really got that start with 4-H. And the big thing with my parents was doing the contests, well, exhibiting and not everything, but making sure you do the showmanship part and the animal and doing the best that I could do. So I did a lot of showmanship with all, I've done every species. So I did showmanship with all of them, even if I didn't really know what I was doing. But rabbits was probably the only one that I got really competitive with. I don't really like to lose. Um, but also, I always, at least if I, if I lost, I wanted to learn from them. And so it always made me try harder the next time. Well, yeah, I think that's um, what 4-H is about. Um, so did having the experience with the goats make it a little bit easier to start another livestock project? Oh, they were completely different. Um, we had land all over Kansas. You had to check them every day or have somebody check them, but it wasn't like the daily care that the rabbits got. Um, goats, you just looked, counted, made sure that they were there, and then pin them every once in a while to trim feed or when getting ready to breed. There was a lot less maintenance on my part. I just got to go and count. With the rabbits, it was pretty well just me. I fed and watered every day, and I worked with them. And as I learned more, I learned about those breeds, and I had to learn every single thing about them for my benefit, not because my parents made me or anything. Because my mom knew absolutely nothing about rabbits when I got started. My dad had raised meat rabbits. He didn't know what kind they were. He was the one that really got me started with 4-H, which is the funny part because then he didn't really help as much, wasn't as involved with it as my mom came to be. As the years went on, my mom got a lot more involved than my dad did. But they're completely different with that daily care. The showing is different, completely different levels. Goats is a lot more hands-on. You working with it and having the judge away, farther away from you. You may not get as many comments and it's a lot easier for them to get stressed out and act completely different because of the texture of the ground. Mine always acted different from home to the fair, but then rabbits, there wasn't as much of a change. I knew if I worked with that animal every day that I could do my best. I would, I would know that I did my best with it. And that it is working with me at the same time, practicing flipping them over and checking the nails. And they weren't really pets, but they were at the same time. 
Yeah, that difference in, you know, just daily care and when you have your hands on the animal, you know, with rabbits, we know when we show them, we just put them on the table, the judge does the handling, you step back, but you still need to prepare them for that. And that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, grooming daily and making sure the nails are clipped, checking for any diseases, checking their teeth, dumping out the water every single day and making sure they're getting the right feed. I know at that time, I think I just used whatever our local co-op had. But now, I've learned a lot more about feed and nutrition. But I also have well over 100 rabbits now. And at that time, I probably had less than five when I started. And eventually, it just started to grow. And I think I had well over 10 different types of breeds over my whole career with rabbits. But I finally settled with my Havana's Florida Whites and the Dwarf Papillons, which has been an amazing experience seeing the Papillons go through and finally be accepted. Yeah, you're kind of right on the cutting edge of a new breed. So let's set the stage a little bit and tell us about Lyon County, Kansas. So Lyon County has different cities. Um, There's Emporia, Neosha Rapids, Hartford, Admire, Redding, Americus. I don't remember if I said Emporia. Bashong. I never really know how to pronounce that one because it's kind of a blink and you miss a town. (laughs) Um, There might be more. I'm really not positive. But in Emporia itself, that's where our fair is held. And there's about 24,500 people in the town. So it's not like it's out in the middle of the country with sparse houses. There's a business directly across. There's houses right behind our beef barn. There's businesses to the other side. And there's a highway going pretty close to it, right off of it. That's how a lot of our judges get here, right off the highway. And so it it makes it kind of difficult, but also, I don't want to say difficult, because that's not how it is. We are very lucky to be in a fairly ag-central area. On those outer towns outside of Emporia, or outside of the city center itself. There's a lot of farms, ranches. There's a lot of agriculture. People grow wheat, corn, milo, everything. And then a lot of cattle. We have a lot of beef in the area. Not as much for goats or lambs. Definitely not for rabbits. Um, But it is a very ag area and it's very ingrained into the history of our town so to kansans emporia is a decent sized city um you know we've got the bigger cities wichita (laughs) which is the metro area is about six hundred thousand. of course there's the kansas part of kansas city which is the smaller side of it kansas city kansas is very small you know everything is in kansas city missouri and there's some suburbs in kansas 
Um, but I think it's interesting, you know, Emporia, Lyon County. Oh, that's one of the bigger towns in Kansas, aside from those population centers. But I think to some of our listeners outside of Kansas, they're still imagining something very rural. Um, the other towns that you mentioned, can you talk a little bit about how big those are? Maybe what is in some of those towns? Yeah, well, I went to high school in Olpe, which is 15 minutes south of Emporia. And whenever I talk about it, I have to say, I went to Olpe, which is south of Emporia, which is south of Topeka, because nobody knows where any of those are. Um, Olpe, well, all those towns pretty much just have a gas station and a post office, a school, and that's the major stuff. They have a few historical little areas here and there in the county. Well, I mean, there's quite a, there's a lot of historical areas in parts of our towns, but Emporia is where everything is. If you have to go to the store, you go to Emporia or to the gas station to pick up something really fast but not for really sustaining yourself. But also a lot of us raise our own food. We have a garden every year with corn and tomatoes, potatoes, onions, the average garden, and then a lot of the actual crops that people plant are for animals, either their own or to sell. It's not as much food grade as it is livestock based and we do have a couple meat lockers that people can take their cattle or deer to because we can't hunt out here uh not in emporia though there are there sometimes there are deer which is a very odd sight for the middle of town (laughs) well and of course um a lot of lyon county is located in the flint hills which is some of the best grassland in the world for grazing cattle. Um, Mm -hmm. I know I posted some photos a few weeks ago. And so if you come down um, I-35 from, you know, from the north, from Kansas City, if you're coming up from the south, from, you know, Oklahoma City or the Wichita area, a lot of what you drive through those beautiful hills, that's part of Lyon County too. Um, I think that's something interesting about Kansas. If you, you know, as opposed to like Missouri or some of the other southern states, you have towns and then you have out in the country and they're very defined. You know, you know, when you're in town as opposed to Missouri, like you kind of, you drive along and you're like, here's a sign for a town, but it doesn't look any different than the area you've just driven through, which is like spread out houses (laughs) and farms. Um, So Kansas, there's a very, um, very definite sense of being in town or not being in town. So I know you've done, Yeah. (laughs) You've done a little bit of research about the history of the Lyon County Fair. So tell us a bit about that. I did. And it was just probably a couple hours ago. Um, But I found out a little bit from one of our fair board members. And so the Lyon County Fair started in 1871. So 150 years ago this year. And they're not too sure if it has been annually since then, but it has been annual since either 1943 or 1944. So the Lyon County Fair has been held at its current place in Emporia 
on the fairgrounds for 77 or 78 years, which is a long time. Originally, it was held, they said, somewhere out in the country, so not a definite place. And then it got moved to Soden's Grove, um, which is, I think, now a park in Emporia. I'm not too definite on that. Um, because while I had to go to Emporia for everything, I knew my local farm area more. And then it got moved, uh, some land donated by the Anderson fam- family. And that's where our fair has been held ever since. At one point, it was the world's longest free fair. And it's still quite long for a fair um, because it spans about one and a half to two weeks, which doesn't sound like a lot to probably mega fairs, but for people at county fairs, that's that's a long time. I really consider it started on, well, this year it would have been July 29th, a Thursday, because we had our friends of 4-H picnic when all the livestock buyers from the previous years and the board members and people from the county and the city and all of our extension staff and the fair office staff, the 4-H families, everybody involved in making the fair, the fair is involved to the Friends of 4-H picnic. And for me, that's when it really starts. And then we have a couple shows right after that for the more inside exhibits This year, it was the dog, hand pets, cat shows, and then our Anderson Building exhibits get brought in, which is your foods and uh, visual arts, quilting, biomanship, and then then our livestock gets brought in, and the small animals, rabbits and poultry, and then after everything has been shown, they've had the round robin for the livestock, everything is dismissed. But then there's still grandstand events that last even longer because they try and keep them after the fair. So then like the truck and tractor pull was extremely loud, which bothered the animals. They're not used to that, that much noise. It's fairly quiet out in the middle of nowhere, as a lot of people like to say it. So this year was 16 days long. Or will be 16 days long. Yeah, that is, is quite long, long. <laughs> for one of our um, county fairs. I know um, most of them are less than a week. And some of them have some of these other events and carnivals and others are just 4-H fairs. Um, so uh, can you tell us what a free fair is for those who might not know what that term means? So I read an article describing our fair as a old-fashioned county fair (laughs) which I thought was funny because it really does describe it but a free fair there's no entry to get in there's no gates to go through we have our arches that say Lyon County Fair but there's nothing really to stop you from going there's plenty of parking spaces. You can go through the goat, sheep, swine, the beef, 
rabbits, poultry, go into the Anderson building for no charge at all. The carnival is the only thing that people would have to pay for or the grandstand events. Um, and then we have vendors that are set up directly outside the carnival and then inside of the Boyer building as well. So tell us a little bit about, since you began showing rabbits at the Lyon County Fair, what it's like showing rabbits at a county fair in Kansas. What are some of the rules? Um, Can you tell us about the ribbon and placing system and things like that? Okay, so our fair is judged in accordance with the standards of perfection, which a lot of judges appreciate. I definitely do whenever I go into county fairs. But it's, it depends on the fair. Ours stays pretty well similar to a normal ARBA show. I try and keep the classes in the right orders. I know I messed up the other day <laughs> with the Polish. Um But we try and keep those senior bucks, senior does, junior bucks, junior does, or intermediates in their pre-juniors. Keep the classes similar, all the breeds together, or separate, and then the varieties separated. It's just a lot smaller. Like, this year we had probably around 30 rabbits, which is small for us. But after last year not being able to show, it made it a little bit more challenging for kids to either want to stay in it. Some kids didn't really want to breed since they weren't going to be able to show. Cause this is the only show that a lot of these kids go to. So for me, it's really important to get an ARBA judge or someone who really knows rabbits since this is the only thing that they do besides maybe our spring show. And some of these kids don't even go to that. Um, but they don't have to pay to enter any of their animals or rabbits since they are in 4-H. We don't have an open class for any of our livestock, so there's nothing for that. And then our ribbon placements, the judge can either choose to not give it a place, so then not award any type of premium, and then they can get a white, which would be probably disqualified for rabbits. It usually just means that they're disqualified. And then red, which, yeah, they're good, but there's quite a bit of improvement that they could still make to do better. And then blue, which is first or second place, depending on how they're looking at it, which Yeah, they're really good, but there are still some minor changes. Purple is the best that you can get at that point before going on to your class champion, which for rabbits would be best of breed, or reserve champion is our opposite of breed, and then overall grand reserve champion, so best in show, reserve in show. And all of these are awarded premiums by the Lyon County Fair Board. And I don't know the exact 
dollar amounts for each one. But they do get money from the fair board for their ribbon placings. And um, their ribbon placings determine whether or not they go to the state fair, correct? Yes, they do. Um, they have to get a blue to go to the state fair. We have had, we or we have ran into an issue in the past where the kids had been told that they have to get a purple to go to the state fair. And that was the year that Tom Little was judging our show. And he said, all right, every single rabbit that I judge that I gave a blue, bump it up to a purple if you're going to do it like that. And that was just a really good memory of him. And it was when I was really young before I started, um, uh, before I became the superintendent. So So let's talk a little bit about um, the way that you have kind of grown up in the rabbit hobby. You started with showing rabbits at the Lyon County Fair. And then um, where did you go from there and who helped you along the way? Yeah, I started showing my third year in 4-H. So I would have been nine years old. Really poor quality rabbits that I look back on and I'm like, oh, that probably should have just been a pet instead of something I took to the fair. I would have been, I, right now I would be embarrassed by what I took then. But I had a lot of fun, which is what mattered at the time. I really enjoyed showmanship. The actual showing part I didn't care too much about because I had what I had in my area and that's, All I went to was the county fair at first. And then the only competition we had was showmanship. And eventually, I started competing at our Hop To It Rabbit Club spring show. Where we only had showmanship and then the rabbits as well. But back then... We also had the Capital City Rabbit Club double show, which was my first experience at a ARBA show. So I was used to seeing maybe 60 rabbits at our fair spring show. Well, the spring show did have a little bit more than 60, but still not very many. And walking into that showroom and seeing hundreds of rabbits, was insane to me and I was extremely shy so of course I was not going to go up and talk to any of these people and I hid with my mom but the club was there doing the concession stand and we all got to show our rabbits and I I want to say I got a leg at that show I think I had a haul and mop. I really don't remember, but I remember getting something in the mail. And I was like, what do I do with this? And I threw it away. <laughs> so that's what I did with my first leg. It went in the trash. Because I was like, why does my rabbit need a leg? He already has four. So <laughs> then uh, how did you get more into ARBA shows and youth contests and all of that? 
it really started because of the contests. I wanted to do more. And at the then, Russ and Teresa Conradi were the leaders of the club. And they told they really encouraged me to go start competing at other spring shows. And so I went to one in Topeka, which was really the only other spring show. And then I went to the show in Wichita and just here and there, different smaller shows. And I placed grand or reserve almost every time in my age group for showmanship. And I was like, okay, so if I'm doing well at this, is there more I can do? And then I got to do my first judging and breed ID contests. But this was all still mostly little spring shows for 4-H members. Or, well, I think I think most spring shows have to say that you have to be a 4-H or FFA member. So I don't think a lot of outside kids do it. But that was how I got my start. And then in... Oh, I have a row down because I knew I would need this. (laughs) In 2000, uh, the Wichita Convention was my first big show that I went to. I didn't compete in anything. I just went for the experience. And then I had Polish. And so I wanted some more Polish. And my mom told me, no way, you are not getting rabbits here. They are way too expensive. And I also wanted Triantas at the time. Triantas. I wanted those. So I bounced around a lot between breeds. Between my years. And then the next year, I want to say 2013 or 14, was when I went to my first KSRBA convention. And I only did showmanship judging and breed id i didn't do royalty i didn't i only showed one or two rabbits i don't think they did well at least i don't remember them placing well in anything but i got first or second runner-up for showmanship and i thought these are the best kids in the state and i'm holding my own against them who, and little old me, who had never been to anything really big. But that's about the time that I actually started to want to compete with the rabbits, not just contests. I was like, I saw all those amazing rabbits and the great judges of the time and the comments that they would give. And mine would always be first off the table. And I was walking around just looking at everything because I'd never seen so many breeds in one place at the same time and I saw a blue rabbit and I fell in love with the color and it turned out to be a blue Havana and I don't remember if there was contact info but this lady came up to me and she started asking me questions and if I was interested in it and it turned out to be Kim Powell, who got a lot of kids started in Havana's. But she was the one who 
she, I think I got a discount for him or whatever. And she was like, we're going to go up to this judge and you're going to have him talk to you about it. And he's just learn what you need to for this breed. They're going to show you what you need just to get somebody else's perspective. Cause I didn't really know. And she kind of made fun of me for not doing royalty and not being in KSRBA. And she was like, you have to do it next year. There's no way you're not going to do it. And so I did. And I don't remember. I joined that day or soon after. And then I started doing the contests, going to more ARBA shows instead of just the local spring shows. I still went to the 4-H ones. And I competed at the fair every year and had so many breeds, but I didn't take very many of them in each one because I didn't really have a lot in each one. But that's about the time my focus started to shift from 4-H to ARBA when I got those blue Havanas. And I just continued with the contests and trying to make better Havanas. Well, that sounds just like Kim. For yeah. anyone in Kansas who knows Kim, she's always got a smile on her face. She is the most enthusiastic person in the show most of the time, but you do what she says. <laughs> you do. I think it was the specialty show. She let me go and watch how they were judged. And it they scared me a little, all these Havana breeders, because they pushed me right to the front of the table, had me right near the judge, and then someone got last place and everybody started screaming and then they got candy thrown at them, which may sound weird to people in other states. But in Kansas, that is a normal thing for the Havana breeders. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone yes. else would think we're insane. But, you know, we all stick together. Our Havana breeders have fun. And that's why it continues to be one of the most competitive and popular breeds here in Kansas. It does. Those, the mini Rex, have really came back from when I started. I remember they were really big when I started, and they kind of dropped, and then they're big again. I remember Florida Whites when I was younger, and there's not quite as many of those now. Netherlands, Jersey Woolies have really increased. But just seeing those breed numbers fluctuate, and I think we're a little down in breeder numbers for Havana in Kansas, but we make up for it. You always know that there's a Havana breeder there whenever somebody screams. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you guys make up for it in enthusiasm. Well, all of these things we really um, tend to be a little bit cyclical, but um, Havanas are a staple in Kansas. So did you go on then to compete in the other um, youth contests? Did you ever um, compete in the youth contest at the ARBA convention or anything like that? Yeah, I did royalty in Kansas for a couple of years, which oh, I should, probably shouldn't explain our royalty process. We go in, we get our little badge, and whoever finishes first gets a little prize. Um, the test is the only thing that actually has a set time for everything else. You can go through at your own pace, but we do just like 
at the ARBA convention, we do judging and showmanship, breed ID, and and we do an interview, yes. That was always my most dreaded part. I was always so anxious about it. I was so scared. I think one year, no, Nancy did showmanship. I used to be so scared of Nancy Kennedy when I started, <laughs> and now... I don't know about these Kansas people. They always, they try and scare you at first, but once you get to know them, they won't leave you alone. <laughs> but I started doing that and did that for a couple of years just at our state level. And then in 2017, I went to Indianapolis and competed in royalty at the ARBA convention, and I show, only showed my English spots in Havana's. I only brought four or five rabbits. I didn't bring a lot because I didn't really care about how my rabbits did. I cared about how I did. And there I was more nervous for the test than anything else because I'm terrible at studying from a book. I always have been. I have to have hands-on knowledge and learning. Learning it like that, at least. But I did the first judging and breed ID, and I was on the team. We did our team breed ID, team judging. And I had gotten a callback for judging, so then I had to give reasons. Or was that a part of it? I really, I don't remember now. It seems like so long ago, but it wasn't at the same time. But I got a royalty callback for the Queen candidacy. And I was so nervous for that. Way more than I probably needed to be. It was extremely relaxed. Because it's, Rabbit people, they know what you're talking about. You don't have to explain every little detail like you would have to to others. But that was my first time competing in royalty. I don't think I placed. But I had a really great time. Especially first time at a huge show. Seeing all those rabbits, it it blew my mind. I never thought I would... Never thought I would have been from... A county fair getting two rabbits to seeing 25,000 rabbits in the same building. But I competed there, and then um, the next year I competed in Massachusetts. And that was my last year as a youth. And I don't, oh, I did management and achievement as well. And I may have won achievement that year in 2018. I don't think I did in 2017. I don't think I placed on anything. But I had a lot of fun doing it, which that's all that matters. Yeah, it is. And it's a good experience. And, you know, just participating and learning is one of the great parts of it. So since then, you have gone on to get your registrar's license. Um, you've judged a lot of county fairs here in Kansas. 
and you have taken over as the 4-H rabbit leader for the Lyon County program. So tell us a little bit about um, what that involves, what, what kind of your year-round duties are as the county rabbit leader here in Lyon County, Kansas. Yeah, so I became the leader when I was 16 years old. And so at first there were some people who were not very happy having a 16-year-old as their leader and felt it should have went to an adult and which I could understand. But at the same time, I was up to date on everything that the ARBA was doing. And I had a lot of ideas to change how we ran our program. And I was there for the youth, but our, our leaders at the time had stepped down and our extension agents, First, she asked my mom since I was a minor, and my mom's like, sure, I don't really care what she does. If she wants to do it, sure. I bet she would love to. And then she asked, and I thought she was, our exchange agent was mad at me because she pulled me aside. I was like, hey, I have to talk to you. I was like, what did I do? I don't do anything bad here. And she asked if I would be the leader and I was so excited I think I almost started crying because I was in high school and they're asking me to take on this big position and I pretty well took over in September October ish when the new 4-H year was starting and I do the agendas for our monthly meetings or almost every month because Kansas weather, you really don't know what's going to happen or family situations. Graduation time is always hard here because a lot of people in Lyon County are related somewhere and where everybody knows each other, some family or friend relation. And so graduations are a hard time. Summer's a hard time because kids are involved with so much and that's great. They have some of them have extra studies that they do or internships, sports, the fair, other projects that they do. But we really try and keep consistent monthly meetings. And we also do the Hop to a Rabbit Club Spring Show, which was the first real event that I ever put on. And I was so stressed for that Uh, we had dan daniels as the judge and he just said carly calm down you're doing a great job it's okay and i know he was trying to help but it did not help (laughs) because i was just i want this to go great i want people to keep coming back and it was just some pressure on a 16 year old but it did it went over really well we stayed on schedule and kept going and then my first fair I was still exhibiting rabbits so I did not choose any of our judges during that time I gave our extension agent a list of names and I said here are a couple people you could call here are a couple people you could call for showmanship and let her completely take care of it so that I didn't know anything since I was an exhibitor 
and I didn't go back behind the table at all. I made the breed list. I sorted the comment cards. I did more of the behind the scenes things whenever I was still in 4-H than how active I am now. And this year was really the first year that I, since I have aged out of 4-H, that I got to be the superintendent. And so it was a lot different not having to worry about my things while also trying to make it as easy as possible for the judge. But all in all, my duties include meetings, making sure that everybody has their animals ex- entered, and checking in, ear tattoos, looking at them for health issues around the fair, making changes to our fair book if we need to. And I'm very lucky to have an extension agent that lets me pretty well have free reign within reason. I would never do anything without clearing it through her, but she knows that I know the project and the industry. And so she pretty well lets me do what I need to, to make our, our project better. So what sort of activities um, go on at your monthly meeting? I've really tried to change it back to the kids doing it for a while. We weren't really having any programs before I started and it really disappointed me because well, for the, so for the other species, they don't have clubs. Um, they have a superintendent that kids can call for the information. But rabbits and poultry are the only two that actually, well, maybe dogs. I think they meet too. But their own financial information and bylaws. I think other places may call them spinoff clubs. But for us, they're club clubs. And... So I really tried to get back to the kids doing it. And what do you guys want to learn about this year? Everybody needs to write down what they want to learn about. And this person's going to do something this month. And this person's going to do something in this one. And putting it a little bit more on them rather than them listening to me talk about things. Because it's not my club. That's not what it is. I'm just there to open the building and educate them to best the best that I know, which can be sent through email. If it's stuff that's really important, yeah, I'll talk about it. Or I talk about it in my leader's report rather than in the program, which is what the kids should be doing. So they've learned about showmanship and diseases, judging, judging terminology. Oh... How meat pens, how to take care of your animals in the heat or when it's too cold, their specific breeds. I just make everybody choose them or not make, I don't make them. I encourage them to pick a month to do a presentation and they can have it be about whatever they want it to be. But just putting it a little bit more of that back on them like 4-H is supposed to be because it's not the leader's job to teach them everything 
of course I want to help them in everything that I can, but also 4-H is about what you can do to make your project better. Well, I can tell from judging showmanship yesterday that the kids obviously practice together quite a bit. Yeah, they really do. And I had taught them in the beginning and then the next oldest kid took over and she's been really helping them. And I still know the basics, but I'm not as updated on the more well I'm updated on the current terms but so I tell them that hey there's new terminology that we need to be using for this they all have standards of perfection and so I encourage them to do it now they have those basic skills to do it it just needs fine-tuned for them Nobody should be exactly the same. They need to find different diseases to talk about or terms, well, not as much terms to use, but what to describe to the judge. And they need to be able to describe it. And I stress that to them. Just because you know the word doesn't mean you actually know what it is. Like walleye and moon eye. What is it? I don't know. It's something I say. Okay, where's your standard? Find out what it is. Oh, that's not in the standard now? Find out what it is. I'm trying to make, have them do it instead of just, so what's this? Because that's not for me to do. That's for them. They need to learn it. So tell us about the duties of a superintendent at a county fair and what the show staff entails and what show day looks like. Really, for the actual fair part, it's pretty simple. Um, We have a day that fairgrounds cleanup is held on, which is a little bit before the fair. And so after the kids go to their club's specific area that they're supposed to clean, then they come to the rabbit and poultry barn. And then we spend time cleaning up any leaves or wood chips, anything that's gone left over from the year before or has blown in because they took, um, we had a fence behind our barn, but since that's gotten taken out, there's a little bit more debris in there this year which has greatly improved airflow. So I'm not complaining about that at all. Um, But we clean it up, check all the pens, make sure that the locks are working and cleaning them. Just getting it all set up is the first thing that we do. And then I send out my emails, making sure that everybody is entered. And the club leaders also take care of that part as well. Or if they have any questions about how they're supposed to enter them. Because it wasn't um, until a couple years ago that we started using online entries instead of paper entries. And as the paper entries weren't maybe easier, but you could write, you could really see it and write the tattoo, breed, variety, sex, age, all of that. While the online entry more just has 
the breed, and then the age and sex. So you don't, coming into it, I don't know what varieties they're bringing. I don't know the tattoos of those rabbits. And so then once they're there, then they have to do the comment cards for each one. Just like at a regular ARBA show, they just have a little section at the bottom that has the ribbon colors for us to mark. That's really the only difference on our card section. Um, This year, I had to work and wasn't able to take off for check-in. So another family checked in the rabbits I had all the cards and everything ready set out. I had the kids' pen assignments because I don't want anybody to fight or drama about where pens are. So I I am the one that just puts them, and that's where they are. And then we rotate that um, every year because it's by club instead of each family since new people will join. So they helped with check-in and making sure there's no diseases on each one and making sure that they fill out the exhibitor card which has their name and club and then a little bit of info about the rabbits on it and it goes outside their pen and then the comment cards because ours we have to put in class numbers and lot numbers and then it's a little bit easier for me if they put the breed and the actual class and variety beside it that part at least helps me out a little um, whenever I sort comment cards Usually I'll have one or two of our older members go through the cards with me as well. Um, I'll probably, usually I'll sort them out by breed and then they'll each take a pile and put them in the actual show order. And then hanging out in the rabbit barn, making sure nobody... Um, Is opening cages that they're not, like people walking through aren't opening cages they're not supposed to, or trying to feed them anything, poking them through the wire. Everybody knows how it is at a fair. (laughs) And then the rabbits get to go home after that long week, after they've been judged. And we clean up the barn and... Wait till next year. And uh, how much money do you make to do this? I don't make any money doing it. All of our leaders are done on a volunteer basis. So our extension staff is paid because they're running the office. That is their full-time job. And then I'm really not sure about our board members or any of the other staff that we have. But all of the actual 4-H clubs, so for us it's like Busy Beavers, Happy Harvesters, Chamnus, Cloverleaf, all of the leaders of those clubs, as well as the Rabbit and Poultry Club, the superintendents for each species, all of those are done on a volunteer basis in Those are people that just love the project. They don't want to see them die out. They want to get kids involved in them. And it's up to us to help 
keep that spirit alive. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, I know that some of the larger fairs around the country or even some of the state fairs, you know, some of these positions are reimbursed, which is great. Um, And some of them go on for a lot longer than our fairs do. And it's hard to expect someone with a job to take, you know, three, four or five weeks off for something like this. Um, But yeah, all of ours are done on a volunteer basis. It's for the love of the project and, you know, the, the compensation is to the judges, which um, in Kansas, um, that's something we do for the love of the project as well. Um, yeah, usually. it definitely varies. <laughs> yeah. But um, that's okay. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I think you've probably had this experience, too, where a lot of times mileage is more of your check than the actual judging fee. Um, yeah, but- Definitely. Yeah, most of the uh, the financial benefits, as they were, go to the kids in the form of premiums or the ability to sell their animals. It definitely does. And there's nothing greater, to, for me, nothing greater that a, kid, that a kid could do than 4-H. I was extremely involved in not just the rabbit project, but goats as well. And I had shown sheep and beef. I was a Lyon County 4-H ambassador, so I was one of the people that helped promote the fair and design our fair shirts. It was actually the year that I joined, or second year, that we started doing fair shirts. So, the and I designed a couple of them that I still see people wear today, and it's exciting to see that. Just that involvement, it never really leaves you. No matter how long you've been out of 4-H, when you go back to any fair, it feels like home. You may not know where everything is. Stuff may have moved around. There may be different families, but the smells are there. There's still the exhibits, the animals. And no matter where you are, you're probably going to run into somebody you know. And it's one of the best experiences that I have had, and I'm so grateful that I have had the opportunity to do it. So what sort of advice would you give someone, either either a parent or a youth member, who's looking at joining 4-H? Do it. I mean, it doesn't matter where you live. People in town can do more the for us, the Anderson Building Projects, so the inside projects. If you like to cook, there's something there for you. If you have a hamster, you can show that. I actually went to the National Congress for 4-H on my hand pet record book, KAP, Kansas Award Portfolio, which was an amazing experience. I had gotten scholarships from it. And really the best thing was, well, not the best, but being able to keep that permanent record for scholarships, that helped tremendously because you keep all those volunteer hours, you know what you have done. We would visit the senior centers, nursing homes, go give talks. We, I was in club days. I would I had spoken uh, spoke at the 
front of the 4-H picnic, in front of hundreds of people. That's when I was seven years old. There is no way that I would have gone in front of that crowd of people. I gained so many, so many skills, confidence, hard work, a lot of leadership skills and organization. Some days I'm do, I do better than others. If it's right before convention, I know that meeting's probably not going to be as well run as it could, could be. And for all of it's, there's nothing better that you can do. Well, I would tend to agree. And I think that, you know, even people who just participated in 4-H for a year or two or just participated in, you know, one or two projects still learn some really valuable skills that stayed with them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, even if you didn't really learn a lot while making it, you go and you, for maybe the inside examples, uh, like visual arts, which is similar to a craft or scrapbook, you can really do anything extremely imaginative. imaginative. You take it and you sit down with a judge, one-on-one, conference judge about it, and you tell them how you made it and they ask you questions. So you get those public speaking skills, conversation skills, which I think a lot of kids are losing today. And being able to present yourself positively as well. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you, Carly, for joining us and giving us a little perspective on a smaller fair and a county that in Kansas we wouldn't consider particularly rural, but maybe some of our area, our listeners in other areas might, and for um, shedding a little bit of light on our 4-H program here. Thank you for asking me to do this. It's I know I was a little nervous to do it just because who would ask a little county superintendent, but... It was really fun. Thank you. You're very welcome. Brian, that was such a great interview with Carly. And uh, it's such a, a cool uh, take on, on my side where I'm, I'm working at fairs out here that are so long. And, and she actually quoted mega fairs in, in what she said and how they're different from those county fairs. And, and both you and I started with, with little fairs uh, in Durham, Connecticut. I, I'll mention it over and over again, how it was uh, the start of my love for rabbits and show rabbits and the ARBA. But uh, it was all volunteer. In fact, at one time, it, it may be still be known as this, but it was the largest volunteer fair in North America, which means they didn't source out to anyone. Everyone went in there and, you know, were in the trenches and t- to put that thing on. So uh, I love what Carly said. And, and hey, by the way, she started with goats, everyone. Don't forget that. They were boar goats. They weren't angora goats, but she did have a lot of goats at one time. Um, I also loved how she said, you know, she was a shy kid before she got into all this. And she certainly doesn't shy, sound shy now. She sounds like a real, uh, real, um, trailblazer in what she does and what she takes on. But, uh, you know, a lot of us did start off as kind of shy kids in rabbits and uh, being in rabbits uh, brought us out of our shell. And uh, as we met more and more people and wonderful people in the ARB and our industry and encouraged us to, to be a little more vocal and to, to get out there and, and change some things. Um, and then how she concluded with how her, her, her kind of history has uh, shaped the way that she works with 4-H kids today. She is always 
asking them, you know, what do you want to learn? Because that's going to make the best better. And it's so cool. Yes, it is. It was a fun interview and it's been fun to watch Carly grow up in this hobby. Yeah, we've seen so many of those grow up in this hobby. And as you said earlier, they oftentimes come back. (laughs) That they do. All right. So I chose uh, our educational portion this episode from the eighth edition of Rabbit Production. And I have definitely pulled from this one in the past, but uh, it's a special nod because the ninth edition of this book is almost ready for print. And uh, Dr. Luke Farr, who's one of the co-authors of this book, has been We've been actively emailing lately because he's been asking me to edit some things on show rabbits within the book. And there's going to be a lot of great advents to the book because it hasn't been updated in 20 years, which is remarkable. And it was the, it was the book I grew up on uh, as a kid, as a resource for science and things that were going wrong or, or things that I wanted to learn more about, such as nutrition and genetics and colors. And it's an excellent book. It's absolutely huge. And uh, so I'm going to pull from chapter 15 of rabbit production. And by the way, if you don't have this book, it should be in your library. It's actually quite hard to find these days because it's kind of out of print. Um, So I would highly recommend holding off because this fall, that uh, ninth edition of the rabbit production book will be published and it's going to have lots of updates and really cool contemporary stuff. Dr. Luke Farr has uh, been leading this one um, as his colleagues, most of which are retired now including uh, uh, Dr. Patton up in Oregon. But he's led the the charges on this ninth edition, and it's going to be a great one. He certainly has us all excited uh, behind the scenes. So if you haven't already purchased Rabbit Production, hold off a little bit. He's actually going to be at conventions talking at RabbitCon this year about it. And uh, we'll include lots of links on how to, how to purchase this book because it's one for everyone's library. So I chose uh, Chapter 15, and I'm going to read a paragraph from it because it's really interesting in regards, in regards to show rabbits and breeding. Um, yeah, the topic is genetic selection for herd improvement. And again, this is the ninth edition of rabbit production. And the piece I'm going to pull from is called selection practices for fanciers. And that's, what's really cool about this book. It's written in a lot of commercial terms for big rabbit trees, but it also, um, pays homage to the people that are showing rabbits and keeping rabbits on a smaller scale. Um, okay. Selection practices for fanciers. Fancy rabbit breeders achieve genetic progress in two ways. One, among herd selection, and two, within herd herd selection. Among herd selection occurs when stock is acquired from a reputable breeder with impressive show winnings to establish a line or to outcross with an existing one for the improvement of a particular show characteristic. The same reputable breeder more than likely obtained his or her stock from yet another reputable show rabbit breeder. This popular, quote, trading of hands, end quote, Selective approach is more, is often more effective than waiting to achieve the same level of genetic improvement following several generations of within herd selection. This is because show type and confirmation traits are influenced to a good extent by genetics and also by environmental factors such as age, diet, management, and season. A breeder may simply desire to increase, say, shoulder width by purchasing a rabbit that presumably has genes for outstanding width of shoulder. This is called corrective breeding. Further, it is not an uncommon practice amongst fanciers to cross their own line to that of another breed to accomplish the same genetic objective of more rapidly improving a specific show trait or characteristic. Another reason for effectiveness of among herd selection practices is that most fancy herds are small uh, these authors say less than 10 does of the same variety or breed. I think that we're a little bigger now in, in most situations, but uh, so it is not possible for the breeder to be 
very rigorous in selecting young stock. Being too selective in a small closed herd without regular introduction of stock from others often puts stock at risk of the adverse effects of line breeding or inbreeding unless it is accompanied by accurate selection and also strict culling decisions. To reduce inbreeding and ensure genetic diversity, it is also important that animals of the same variety or breed be purchased from and sold to a number of breeders. Some dog breeds have been devastated by over-limiting of gene pool and uncontrolled breedings. In other words, within herd selection, it is effective only when the herd size is adequate and when superior genes for qualitative and quantitative show traits become concentrated in the line. As discussed earlier in this book, this is usually through careful line breeding practices that emphasize the contribution of outstanding common ancestors being highlighted through the pedigree selection. The secret for genetic success of show stock development is that the best stock is first acquired and from one or more reputable breeders to establish a quality baseline. Then through sound within herd selection practices involving several generations, best eventually becomes even better. How does that relate to uh, your breeding practices, Bryony? Well, I think that um, that sums it up pretty well. I have more than 10 does, not a whole lot, um, about 20. But yeah, that's that's kind of how I tend to work. I do within herd selection. When I need a particular trait, I will go out and get it. I tend to have a pretty good idea of which bloodlines cross well with mine and which bloodlines have certain traits. And my favorite thing to go to is to go back to someone that I've sold a rabbit to, to get something that's got just a little bit of my blood in it because it tends to cross better um, on the first generation and click a little bit more quickly than maybe an outcross. But yeah, I think that's, you know, great advice for everyone. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I had never heard of these terms kind of tagged with with breeding show rabbits and some of those traits, but uh, there's, we may not call them those things, you know, when we're in our rabbit trees, but a lot of us practice these. these and I, I really liked how the author said, you know, you can not bring new rabbits in for that trait that you're trying to improve and just kind of select after litter, after litter, after litter. And it's, it's just a long process. Yeah, you probably will eventually get there. But for quicker improvement in whatever trait you're looking for, you're probably going to have to go out, outside to get it. And, and as you said, sometimes going outside means going outside, but not totally outside and picking something that has some of your, some of your, your genetics in it already. And I think that's a really effective tool. Well, and I think, too, the other thing to remember, um, and you see this in a lot of breeders. I mean, we've been judges for a while. We've judged breeders' animals over periods of years and watched, you know, kind of the evolution of their herds. Um, is that when you're selecting for, to improve certain traits, you got to be careful not to lose the good things you already have. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes that first cross is kind of like, whoa, what is this? Do these come from Mars because they, they're so, you know, not exactly what you expected. Yes, absolutely. You sometimes got to keep, um, you know, a parts rabbit or something like that from that first generation and then take it back in to really see, you know, a better all around animal with those specific traits that you want. That's right. Sealing those genetics, sealing that deal. All right, everyone, that concludes episode 22. Another great one, Brian, excellent interview with Carly. Thank you, Carly, for being part of our, our podcast. And, uh, another note to what she said, you know, yeah, we've interviewed some, some legends in this, but you know, we all started somewhere and there is something to hear. There's a story to, to hear and there's something to learn from everyone that that's on this. And we hope to get uh, many more people from whether they're legends or just starting out. Um, so thanks, Carly, for that. Uh, a reminder to like, follow and share the rabbitry on Facebook. That 
as I said earlier, will continue to be our hub each and every week for our podcast. And in there, you can dive into formerly uh, aired episodes. And as well, your comments mean the world to us. So whether that's through an email to our podcast address, which is podcastbestinshow at gmail.com, or through one of the platforms which you listen to us, whether it's Audible, um, Apple, or Spotify, uh, Google, whatever it is, drop those comments, hit the five star. We certainly appreciate it. All right, Bryony, what is your quote for the week? Well, I chose one from one of Kansas' favorite sons from the small town of Abilene, who also served during World War II. And if you know who this is, points to you. For any American who has had the great and priceless privilege of being raised in a small town, there always remains with him nostalgic memories. Dwight D. Eisenhower. <laughs> I love it. What do they say? You can take the small you can take the boy out of the small town, but you can't take the small town out of the boy, something like that. I love it. Yes. <laughs> All right, everyone, as we conclude every episode, keep talking rabbits, keep talking cabies. We will see you next week. This podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association. It does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed. To learn more about the ARPA, 